Conversations With, a podcast series exploring the people and practices shaping the impact of private philanthropy to benefit communities across Africa. Conversations With is produced by the Africa Grantmakers Affinity Group, working to promote robust, effective, and responsive philanthropy and to build a network of informed, engaged, and connected funders. Visit the africagrantmakers.org website for program notes and to join our mailing list. Welcome, everyone. My name is Niamani Mutima, and welcome to the Africa Grantmakers Affinity Group Conversation with Series. Thank you for joining us. In my role working with the network of grantmakers funding in Africa, I'm often asked how organizations can connect with funders who are active in Africa. More often than not, these inquiries aren't coming from professional fundraisers, but from those seeking advice on how to get resources to local organizations working to address the needs of their communities. Over the past two years, the COVID pandemic has certainly underscored the challenges that African-based organizations face. Fundraising requires not only identifying how the interests of the grant seeker and the grant maker align, but also understanding the fundraising landscape especially the fundraising landscape in the United States. I end these conversations wishing I could be of more help, especially about some of the misconceptions about raising money. In this episode, I'm talking with Hafisa Rashid, who's worked as a grant maker and a grant seeker, conducted workshops on fundraising, and worked with different types of funders and organizations, both domestic and international. She joins me to talk about nine misconceptions about fundraising and what she calls lessons hard and easy that she's learned over time. Welcome, Afiza. Hello, Niamani. Would you share a bit about your experience? Yes, I'm very excited to be here. I started my career in philanthropy as a grant seeker many years ago. I was an elementary school teacher, and so I was always on the lookout for grants to supplement classroom supplies, anything that would allow me to keep my measly paycheck to myself and not the classroom. And then after I uh, went to philanthropy but wanted international experience, and so I worked for uh, a Liberian organization. I was a grant seeker once again, and in this case, it was fundraising among Liberians as well as U.S. donors and trying to navigate kind of the legal rules of how can we fundraise. We did it backwards by asking for the money first and then realizing like, wait a second, there's all these rules. So it was a big old mess that we had to untangle. That experience led me to be like, let me get on the other side. So I joined an organization called King Bodwin Foundation United States. And there we were actual grant makers to international organizations, primarily based in Europe and Africa. I remain on this side of the fence now with more philanthropy as director of programs and partnerships. So I'm really excited to share some of the lessons hard <laughs> um, and easy that I've learned over time. You've developed a list of what you call the top nine. Let's talk about them. Let's start with the misconception that applies to organizations based outside the United States. So in order to fundraise in the U.S., your organization needs to have a 501c3 classification. Why is that a misconception? So I have worked for organizations uh, that did not have 501c3 classification, and we still fundraised. 
Most recently, 2020 was a very intense time in terms of the pandemic. So I got really involved in my neighborhood with the Liberian organization. We didn't have 501c3 status, but we still fundraise. So it's not a prerequisite for fundraising in the U.S. However, it's really important to define these terms so you can decide what's the best avenue for your organization. There's sometimes a conflation between a nonprofit organization and a 501c3. People use them interchangeably. But a nonprofit organization, different from a 501c3 in that it means different things. A nonprofit organization can fundraise. It's organized as a corporation for a nonprofit purpose. But a 501c3 is a type of a nonprofit organization that U.S. federal tax authorities referred to as the IRS, classifies as tax exempt. And tax exemption allows a donor to a 501c3 to claim tax benefits on their charitable contributions to that organization. So if your organization just wants to fundraise and your donors are not interested in receiving tax benefits, go ahead. If your organization wants to fundraise and you know your donors, particularly those that want to give substantial gifts and would like to claim tax benefits on their gifts, then looking at how you can take advantage of 501c3 status makes the most sense, especially if among your donors, it's going to be private foundations, public foundations, or you're seeking donations from a U.S. corporation. They will definitely be looking at what kind of legal status that your organization has. So, and they'll be looking at it as a way to either allow your organization to be eligible to to apply for their grants or donations or to restrict you from them. So if you come across a donor, individual, private, public foundation or corporation that has a minimum requirement that your organization be a 501c3 status, you have two options. One, your organization itself applies for 501c3 status with the U.S. federal tax authorities, known as the IRS, can take several months and you'll be required to comply with whatever requirements in order to retain that status and not have it revoked. And then there's an alternative where your organization signs up with an existing 501c3 organization and agrees to be fiscally sponsored. Okay, so that takes us to the next misconception that refers to the role of a fiscal sponsor. You say that a sponsor is a fundraiser is a misconception. Why? So the Council of Nonprofits defines a fiscal sponsor as, quote, a nonprofit organization that provides fiduciary oversight, financial management, and other administrative services to help build the capacity of charitable projects. So the organization or your organization agrees that its fiscal sponsor receives the donations on its behalf, and those donations are eligible for tax benefits because the fiscal sponsor is a 501c3. Then those donations, minus the fiscal sponsor's fee, that's important to look at, (laughs) are available for your organization's charitable use, charitable projects. Your organization can even use the tax-exempt status of your fiscal sponsor to be eligible to apply for grants that it otherwise would not be able to. People often turn to a fundraising consultant for help. But why is it a misconception that a fundraising consultant is a fundraiser? Because they sound exactly the same. (laughs) So, I mean, everyone's a consultant. I I, I call myself a consultant of whatever. I mean, it's just, it's like being an entrepreneur now these days. But yeah, they sound the same, but they're very different. So a fundraising consultant is really 
more accurately, like a fundraising coach. They're going to teach you how to be able to fundraise, guide you all the way up to the game, but the coach actually can't play the game for you. You actually have to play the game, but you're using all of the strategies, the practices, all that kind of thing that you've worked out with the fundraising consultant to prepare you for ultimately making the ask. So a fundraising consultant, largely they do many things, but broadly they define your fundraising. They help you define your fundraising objectives and emphasis on you. They're not going to give it to you. They're going to help you do it so that in the future you can do it on your own. And then they're going to help you, your organization, um, achieve its fundraising goals. Again, they're not going to do it on your behalf. They're going to teach you how you can do it. A fundraising consultant and a fundraiser are very different um, in those roles, but a major difference is how they're compensated. So a fundraising consultant is compensated by fee for service. They'll have a, a contract for a set amount of months or hours or something like that. And whether you're wildly successful in your goal, achieving your goal, or maybe you're not as successful in achieve, achieving your fundraising goal, there, that's still the fee that you pay to the fundraising consultant. A fundraiser, at least in the past, was someone that they would base their compensation on how much the organization raised. So say the organization raised $100 and they're going to take 10% of that $100 or something like that. Percentage-based compensation is, is generally frowned upon in the U.S. and notably prohibited by the American Association of Fundraising Council and the Association of Fundraising Professionals. So that's a big difference if you're coming from a country where there's, there's definitely an ecosystem of fundraisers who base their compensation on how, on how much money you raise. But in the U.S., fundraising consultants are actually coaches that get their contracted fee, regardless of how successful it is, but they're teaching you all of the strategies so that in the future, you'll be able to do it on your own. So fundraising, it's about raising money. So why is it a misconception that a successful fundraising campaign means a lot of money was raised? There are many different metrics in which to classify a successful campaign. And I think it's really important, particularly for organizations that are new to fundraising, that you have more than just money to measure your success. Otherwise, it's going to get really depressing. Finding out what kind of different fundraising success metrics, it could be new, it could be based on social media metrics, in terms of, oh, we've gotten new users to come to our website or open our emails, new contacts that are made. We've been able to grow our contact database from X to Y. Helps you endure the long race that is fundraising because ultimately it is about relationship building. And what may not seem as much success in the first year definitely, definitely weighs into how successful you'll be in the fifth year. And you want to be able to chart those kinds of, of achievements to maintain and accelerate the engagement that you're going to need for it. So in raising money, there's another misconception that you talk about. Why shouldn't people think that one big gift is better than 10 small. Well, there are a couple of reasons. Say your organization did receive 
uh, its 501c3 status. There is a legal requirement that you need to show that you actually do have the public support for your organization. And you'll have to demonstrate to U.S. federal tax authorities that it's just more than one person giving to you. You're actually involving the public, i.e. multiple donors. So one big donor may actually tip the scales in terms of eligibility of retaining your 501c3 status if you're not able to satisfy what is known as the public support test. The other thing is if you have one big donor, you better, you better hope that one big donor really love you because if their priority changes, if they fall in love with someone else and decide you're successful, we don't need you, you know, you don't need my support anymore, then you're going to have to start again in terms of the relationship building. So having more than one relationship with other people, it's far, far easier to go back to someone that has already given to you in the past and then ask them to give again rather than start a whole new relationship. So having a, a mixed portfolio of supporters in that includes the number as well as the type of supporters is really important in terms of the long-term success of not only your fundraising campaign, but the sustainability of your organization. Online fundraising has become very popular and people use different platforms to raise money and it sounds pretty easy. So with the large number of people on social media and on the internet, why is it a misconception that a successful online crowdfunding campaign just needs to go viral? So going viral is rarely, if ever, organic. <laughs> it requires a lot of work in the background to achieve virility in the online space, particularly because it, there's so many different voices and platforms and just bobbles and things like that that are going to distract your donors. With online fundraising, it really does require a mapped out plan over several months at least to achieve the kind of organic virality that gets people excited. But at the very beginning, you need to have in your pocket, i.e. Niamani, in two months, you along with X amount of other people, you have pledged to give at this time, midnight on May 1st, X amount of dollars, because when other people see that someone is giving, then they're more likely to give. But if no one knows about it, then it's not going to happen. And there are a lot of amazing projects, people, stories that in order to push your narrative out front, you're going to need you're going to need your click already in place. That's going to do it for you and on behalf of you. So when we're seeing an online crowdfunding campaign that everyone knows about more than likely, it's because there has been a lot of work in the background, in the shadows that has happened to make it a success. And those early supporters or first supporters are ones that already know the organization and they have actually recruited their own networks to add in. And so then it just becomes, it ripples out. You drop the, the pebble in the water and it ripples out, but it's not going to start out here. It has to start within here, as in your staff, your board members, your already existing network of supporters, those that want to act as ambassadors so they can get their friends and so on and so forth. 
So let's talk about misconceptions about board. So what are the misconceptions about board? I was unfamiliar with the culture of boards in, in, in Europe and Africa as being one of the person who sits on a board is, it is an honor for an organization to be able to recruit this board member because of their career achievements or academic achievements, that kind of thing. So the person is actually deigning to spend their time on the board to provide their expertise. In the U.S., our culture around boards is really one where it is expected that you give up your time, your treasure, and your network so to ensure the success of the organization. So it's more like the person that's selected on the board, like, oh my gosh, you chose me, rather than the organization being like, oh, you chose me. I think a, a large misconception is, is that kind of perspective on like, who is, who is the one being recruited? Is it the organization or is it the person? So in U.S. board culture is very much you give of your time, your treasure, your network, that kind of thing. So is there another misconception that people have about boards? Like, shouldn't all board members be wealthy? If you're an organization that um, is really community focused and you, you'll want a diversity of board members. So, yes, you want those that are able that have the financial resources to support your organization. But you'll also want want board members that can give up their time and their own expertise expertise to provide the needed governance for your organization. You'll want someone that wants to tell others about your organization and really act as ambassadors and amplifiers of your work. So it need not be, oh, I have to fill out a board that's all wealthy people because, okay, they, they cut a check once a year. And then, and then what, what is the other support that they're going to provide that helps your organization grow? You'll want a mix of board members that are able to do ideally all three or a mix of able to do one over the other kind of thing. All that to say they're all working together to advance the mission of the organization and and actually really do act as a resource for senior management of the organization so they can focus on doing their work. Finally, let's talk about misconceptions about funding. There's this misconception that a large source of funding for nonprofits comes from U.S. corporates. Not true? No. Giving USA regularly puts out a survey or a breakdown of funding sources. Corporates really only comprise about 10 to 15 percent of charitable giving in the U.S. It's quite small and it's a, an insular ecosystem, right? It's their employees telling them who they should give to. It's their board members. It's their marketing departments <laughs> that are linking up their charitable giving to whatever promotions that they have. So a lot of non-U.S. organizations look to corporations thinking that might be a wealth of giving. But a lot of U.S. organizations know that it's, it's a pretty small slice of the pie. The biggest slice of the pie in the U.S. are individuals. Individuals comprise the the largest share of total giving in the United States. And it's reflected in the fundraising culture that we've really defined here. There's a lot of emphasis on individual giving. And individual giving also in turn is the one that helps with corporate giving because those individuals are employees and executives 
of these corporations and they help put you on the radar kind of thing. There's a misconception that public and private foundations are a big chunk of the pie as well. Their giving is closer to corporate levels of giving than it is to individuals. And again, you're not at the mercy, but at the mercy of leadership change, a different strategic strategy, different grant-making priorities. And so... And again, your biggest advocates are going to be the individuals that make those connections to those private foundations. And I say private foundations specifically because the vast majority of private foundations you cannot find in an online search. They do not have websites. Um, and when I'm saying private foundations, I'm speaking specifically about family, family run and family started established foundations. So individuals, at least in the U.S., are a huge chunk of the pie in terms of fundraising raising and really comprise that kind of like base of support that then gets you to the next tranche of corporates, private foundations, public foundations, that kind of thing. This is really good information to keep in mind, Hafiza. These misconceptions can cause people to waste valuable time and energy. So thanks so much for sharing them with us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations With. We hope you enjoyed it. Please visit our website at africagrantmakers.org and join our mailing list. Until our next Conversations With, be well.